Great. All right. So everyone, this is, I don't know if you've been counting, but this is actually number seven in our list of um, of the Parsha and the Haftarah that we've been reading week to week. And if you spent much time in the Bible, you probably know seven is a pretty big deal. It's a pretty big mm-hmm. number. And <clears throat> maybe I'm just drawing points between dots here, but it seems that Vayetze, this particular Parsha for this week is trying to pull some dots together the way that they spliced it out in the life of Jacob. You don't get the entire life of Jacob from beginning to end, but you get a very important one that actually follows up on what John talked about this week. And I'm going to say the theme is probably something like deception. Now, maybe there's another one and I'm deceiving you now in some kind of irony, but I really do think that it is uh, showing you what happens when someone with Jacob's character meets, ironically, his own kin. And I want to take us through that in just a minute, but I want to help us um, take a step back first and think about what's what's the purpose of reading through a theme. A theme is not supposed to highlight every single word you come across. When you, when you read with a particular lens, you're not going to catch every detail. And that is a, a, a big weakness of trying to read with a particular lens. But what it does do is it helps you notice those details that were probably never going to stick out to you otherwise. And as you read through a portion of scripture saying, today I'm looking for X, it'll help you notice X where it's always been, but uh, it probably didn't jump out of the page to you. I remember when I was a kid growing up in church, for me, it was place names. Every time Jesus went to Capernaum or something, I was like, okay, he went somewhere. And they went in another place. And I didn't think at all about the importance of where he's going. And today we're going we're gonna to see, um, I think, one of my favorite little snippets from Tanakh and how place names really do matter. But um, again, with, with themes, why would I pick deception for this? I really do think it's threaded through both the Parsha and the Haftarah. And there's two, by the way, one for or actually three, John told me earlier today, there's the Karaite one, which I'm not going to try and try and uh, broach with you guys. But we will look at definitely the Sephardi and probably also the Ashkenazi uh, versions of our Haftarah, which are both from Hosea. They don't even overlap. They're right next to each other. The Sephardi has Hosea 11, 7 to 12, 12. And the Ashkenazi read from 12, 13 to 14, 10. So for whatever reason, they're both looking at pretty much the end of Hosea, which is the part no one wants to talk about when they go through that book of the Bible. Everyone loves chapters one through three. And yet uh, they're they're touching on different ones. And I think they're doing so with, with this purpose of seeing the underlying theme of Jacob's life, which is deception. I've only been in the old city of Jerusalem for a couple of years now, but in that time I have made one and exactly one devout Muslim friend. And it is a major victory, I think, uh, in our friendship that every time we sit down, oh, he loves everything about Christianity except the whole Christ being divine thing. And so I can't get out of any conversation with the guy without him trying to convince me of renouncing my creed uh, and and joining him in some kind of quasi-Christian stance. And he, he always loses that battle. He always just gets frustrated. Okay, you're not going to renounce it. Okay, well, just do this, he says. Honor God and don't cheat. And I was like, okay, that's a good one too. 
I think I've heard a good one too like that before. Uh, the way Jesus would put it, or depending on which gospel you're reading, the the lawyer who's speaking to Jesus, they would say, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So what is it about my friend here where the second most important thing you can do, the one that involves other people is a prohibitive that seems to be like a sub point under, you know, doesn't love cover all things? Can't you fulfill the law by loving your neighbor? But this guy knows that. He's heard that a million times. And for some reason, he still thinks the better one-liner to leave me with is do not cheat. I think, and I can only say I think, but I think he is projecting a little bit. And that's what makes it so powerful for me to hear. Because he has had a very long life. And he has been cheated in some very, very bad ways. And he himself has cheated others. And so if to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If to a person with this one particular difficulty, everything looks like um, a battle through that lens. Everything is either cheating or treating someone fairly then it makes perfect sense for him. When he says, do not cheat, he is effectively telling me to love my neighbor. And I think, though I can't claim this, I think someone like Jacob, only from the bits we know in scripture, would likely be found to say something like that as well. And we'll, we'll see through this Parsha why that is. If you guys will do this, 30,000 foot overview with me. I'll share my screen so we can read the text together. Don't mind the the million tabs I have open. It's just uh it's just my research. But it starts with us in Genesis 28 with Jacob's dream. This is obviously a turning point in his life. Uh and I I believe you all know the story. He <clears throat> sets out uh, at a place that he does not yet name, but he eventually, after the stream, will call it Bethel, the house of God, because of a dream he has of the heavens opening and angels ascending and descending upon something like a ladder. Um, I'd like to say something like a ziggurat is more likely what he saw, something like a temple he would be familiar with um, that would show you how heaven and earth connect. And what's really interesting <laughs> is what he says here in verse 17, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And then he decides to make a vow in verse 20. He makes a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace. That's all really good stuff, but that's the protestant. That's the if statement. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Now, this sounds great. It's it's going after the pattern of his grandfather, Abraham, who set set for us the pattern of giving a tenth. Um, it, it is technically a proclamation of, um, of servitude, of devotion, of I will make this God my God. And yet it, it's pretty standoffish. It uh, sets it all in the future. Get me all the way to Padanaram. Bring me all the way back home in peace. And then 
I will make this God my God. Okay, well, let's see how that goes for him. Because if we take what he says seriously here, then even if and when he invokes the name of the God of his grandfather and his father, he has not yet personally made that God his. And this is where we run into, uh, as they like to say, family difficulties. He journeys to the east. He goes back essentially where his his family is from and um, goes to the home of his um, of his uncle Laban. And there he falls in love with this girl, or maybe he's smitten with her. I'm not sure what the best phrases are for for it, but he has some massive emotional connection to Rachel and is willing to work for many years if she'll be his wife. Okay, great. So Laban hears about this and he runs out to embrace him and kiss him and bring him to his house. They talk about their relationship. The, oh my gosh, my kin is back here. Wow. And they strike up this deal. Now, Laban doesn't tell the truth to Jacob, doesn't tell him the full truth, but he works. Jacob works under the presupposition that he's working to marry Rachel. But I think you all know the twist, right? On his wedding night, who is it that he wakes up next to the next day? It's Leah. And what happens in this? He 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 confronts Laban about going sour on this deal. And Laban says, hey, come on, it's my custom. You're not going to tell me to, to betray my custom. This is how we do things here. And so he makes a second deal. So Jacob has now got the short end of the deal, at least by his own perspective. And yet he's willing to keep going through with it. We're going to get back to why Laban is such a big deal in his his trickery here later on in the connection to the Parsha. But as we go through this little family history, Jacob having children, what we see is a bitter competition between Rachel and Leah. Um, both with Zilpah and Bilhah, their maidservants, and all of them quite literally competing to have children. In fact, we're even told that um, that Leah more or less buys a night with her own husband, Jacob, from Rachel. And um, he is obliged by her deal with Rachel to uh, to give her a child next. So they take turns taking advantage of each other. I, I'm i not going to try and psychoanalyze the this family in its entirety. Some of it is customs that are different. Some of it is probably interpersonal issues, miscommunications, uh, jealousies, and whatnot. It's hard to say exactly who's doing what from a psychoanalytic level. But I think any reader of this section of scripture will come away saying, oh my gosh, these people are kind of kind of less than loving, kind of messed up, and yet they're prosperous. Yet they have the needs, um, their, their needs are met. That vow that Jacob made at Bethel seems to be holding so far. And so in this next section, Jacob's prosperity, we go down and see yet another deal. Starting from verse 31, he said, what shall I give you? This is Laban talking. Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you'll do this for me, I will again pass to your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb 
and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that's not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, good, let it be as you've said. But that day, Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in the charge of his own sons. And he set a distance of three days journey between himself and Jacob and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. This is strike two, as so far as they are trying to come to some orderly agreement with each other. And Laban seems to get the upper hand, at least in the deal-making. But Jacob, once again, seems to remain on top. We read on, Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plain trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks. And so the flocks brought forth striped and speckled and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock, that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Wow. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, camels and donkeys. Even when he is cheated in this deal, and he does not necessarily have to, to do anything explicitly against Laban's uh, end of the deal. Jacob ends up prospering. And this is not okay. There's a plot against him. There is no favor in Laban's eyes for him. And then the Lord says something to Jacob that I think should remind us of the vow. He says, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred and I will be with you. Okay. So Jacob starts off and you probably remember at least the main points through the rest of, of this story, they run away and Jacob doesn't know that Rachel has stolen some idols from her father's house and Laban pursues them. He gets pretty angry about this and they have yet another exchange. Verse 25, Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob has pitched his tent in the hill country and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the country of Gilead. This is where Jacob was heading towards. And this is a very important place name, most likely even anachronistic place name that will um, speak to us here in just a minute. Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you've tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my own sons and daughters farewell? Now you've done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm, but the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you've gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. 
in the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now, Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. And Rachel tricks her own father. She uh, she gets the upper hand in uh, in this question of where are the gods? Laban never finds out. And then Jacob gets angry with him and berates him back. What did I do? What was my sin? What was my offense that you pursued me like this? We get all the way down, though. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed, wouldn't you? God saw my affliction labor in my hands and rebuked you last night. And this is what leads to the the great place name. I hope it's okay with y'all. I'm really jumping through because it's not the main focus here, but we have to hit a few points that I think Hosea will bring up for us. In verse 44, they say, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather some stones. They took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Yegar Sadutha, which is Aramaic, very, very, very old Aramaic for a heap or a pile of witness. And Jacob called it Galid, which is very, very old, essentially Proto-Canaanite or Hebrew for witness pile. They're only different in the the roots that they come from as these are sister languages and technically how they would put together the idea of a pile and its purpose a pile of witness or a witness pile that's the best english can do to approximate the difference but they are effectively the same name simply translated laban said this heap is a witness between you and me today um therefore but it's not really laban that's doing it is it the author of Genesis is translating for us. He named it Galit and Mitzvah, for he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we're out of another sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see God is witness between you and me. So even in making a covenant, they don't have all that much trust in one another or for each other. And yet this pillar of witness, this covenant they're making is one that essentially concretizes their relationship. It kind of puts a a final note on how Jacob relates to his in-laws. And then they go away in peace. And that's the end of our Parsha. He went on his way and the angels of God met him. There's so much in that verse though. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And he named that place Mahanaim. So a few things we've learned about this family. It's pretty messed up. Everyone seems to have agency in how they act and how they treat one another. And it's usually not for the better. Jacob, though he doesn't always act dishonestly, there are some moments of of pure intention and honest behavior. Um, He seems to get the better end of his vow to God. He prospers anyway, and he returns home safely. Now, we have to find that out later after his encounter with Esau. But just spoiler alert for you, that, that vow he made seems to have held him well, or God held up his end of that deal before Jacob was even willing to properly 
make that God is God. And so where deception seems to interweave itself in ruining covenants and ruining relationships, God sees a picture of the nation that would come from Jacob and his wives and his children. He sees a pretty good description of the children of Israel, especially when they get through into the divided kingdom of northern Israel and southern Judah. And that's where we pick up in Hosea 11. Just in case anyone forgot, what's the the crazy thing about Hosea? Hosea is a prophet just as much as Jeremiah, who was called essentially to suffer. His prophetic call is not to have a great time. It is to take for himself a wife of whoredom. And it feels so archaic to use that word, but it's actually important because it's not technically, doesn't have to technically be prostitution and temple prostitution specifically. I've read a lot of commentaries that assume that he like went to a temple of Baal and picked out for himself Gomer, and she was already a temple prostitute who returned to it. But that's actually, that's, that's not a certain thing in the text. That's an assumption. But it can also be understood as just adulterous, just unfaithful, because she actually seems pretty faithful to him. If we read chapters one through four, Gomer seems pretty faithful in having their first child, Jezreel, which we're almost certain, according to the text, is Hosea's son. But the second and third children are less and less, until we're pretty certain, not actually his. And so whether she originated in in an adulterous place or got to one later, it's not absolutely certain in the text. But God knew and intended for this to happen, or at least intended to use it as it happened. And, you know, a lot of people, when they read Hosea, they they look at the family drama in chapters one through four, and then the rest is like, okay, like some political prophecy about Assyria or something. And yet it's the back half that's really the, the intent of this book of prophecy. It is to turn the analogy onto the kingdom of Israel and say, okay, let's look at what roles we're playing right now. And this is where we find ourselves in Hosea 11, verse 7. He says, my people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the most high, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? I have to pause here. He's going to say Ephraim all the time in our scripture today. Ephraim is not just the the tribe of Ephraim. Ephraim is synecdoche for the entire northern kingdom, all 10 tribes of Israel. You find Ephraim mentioned in Hosea. It is... uh, essentially place name, just like we say Judah, and we really mean Judah and Benjamin, or everyone living in Southern Judea, which will eventually be Israelites from the Northern Kingdom. But God says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? These are two towns that were completely and utterly destroyed. You can read about them in Genesis and Deuteronomy. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt. 
and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Now, a lot of commentaries think that this is mostly describing the righteous and unrighteous kings over each of these nations. And because Judah had a few righteous kings, Josiah, Hezekiah, two of the most famous, okay, maybe we're, we're caught in a place where, okay, Judah's kind of keeping it together. But a lot of other people say that, no, this is probably an indictment on, I hate to, to go back to <laughs> what we talked about at the very beginning before the Bible study, but like, I love, I love your people, the government, I don't know about. Um, there is a difference between the government and its people. And yet, Hosea, I'm going to tell you, I think he is mostly critiquing the broad culture of the people, at least that he has seen living and the reputation they've gained, which we're going to read about in just a minute. So this is not just saying bad king, bad people. This is saying you all together have spoiled the broth here. To use an old analogy that I didn't know I'd ever say out loud. Chapter 12 starts like this, though. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. Notice the two places that they will eventually have to return from because of the coming exile that seems to be tied with some of their trading practices and general wickedness after rubbing shoulders a little too much with these, with these cultures. Verse 2 says, the Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. That's a callback to Exodus, by the way, when God reveals his personal memorial name to, um, to Moses. So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. If you're looking for a, a positive thesis, like a, a good one-liner, please take this, verse 6 out of chapter 12. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. This is Hosea's thesis. Unfortunately, it has to be surrounded by a lot of examples of why this thesis was necessary in the first place. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, ah, oh, but I'm rich. I found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. We're going to have to unpack that together for a minute. First of all, the term for merchant here is not our usual term, socher. Here, the word used is Canaan. And if that sounds familiar to you, it's because it is. The land of Canaan, the person of Canaan, uh, happens to be both a place name and a descriptive title for, for merchants that, uh, that make their living on trading goods back and forth between other countries. And he's not talking about simple, hardworking tradesmen. He's talking about someone with false balances, someone intending to deceive others. 
And Ephraim seems to take this mentality of, but I've prospered. I did a good job. I found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. Now, we just spent the last, what is it, like seven verses reading a quick synopsis of the life of Jacob. And I don't think it's lost on anyone in Israel's history that Jacob, for all his uh, good qualities, was a bit of a cheat. He And it's not just taking one example, grabbing the heel or something. And it's not just a self-fulfilling prophecy of, well, his name kind of has this, this meaning of cheating. But he just he demonstrates it multiple times over, and it seems to populate the world around him, other people in his life, both of his wives, his father-in-law, everyone around him that the text cares to tell us about seems to reinforce this very, very proto-Nietzschean view of morality, which is will to power. If you can do it, do it. Instead of seeing things as objectively right or wrong according to how God has designed us to live and care for one another in creation, there seems to be, if I can try my hand at a bit of psychoanalysis for a second, in the mind of a cheater, of a person who wants to deceive and hurt others, there's usually a belief that right wrong doesn't really matter. And if it matters, it doesn't matter enough to stop me from getting the upper hand. I said proto-proto-Nietzschean because his whole belief in the will to power was a way of trying to naturalize this, uh, this thing in our nature that says, it doesn't matter what some ancient God said or a, a, a body politic that wanted to find good rules for behaving properly with each other. What matters is that I exert my power on something else and get what I need or want out of it. And the people in Jacob's family seem to do a great job of this. And the people of Ephraim, which is Israel in the days of Hosea, seem to do a great job of this. They amass for themselves wealth. And they think that because they're not actively suffering just yet, this must be some kind of vindication of their actions. But this is what God says. I am the Lord, your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied their visions and through the prophets gave parables. If there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal, they sacrificed bulls. Their altars are also are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife. For a wife, he guarded sheep. I think it's a travesty that, that chapter 11 just kind of ends, or sorry, 12, cut, cuts out here as one reading. Because if we put the, the two Haftaras together, we could continue on naturally. But before we do that, Notice a place named Gilead here. I can't tell you 100% that Hosea has only this in mind. It, the Gilead in his day probably was iniquitous, probably was a center of power with plenty of people doing wrong, just as he described. But he's not mentioning it in a vacuum. Gilead is from the same root in the place name Jacob gave to his stone, his, pow, his mound or pile of witness, Galid and Gilead. 
the sacrifice of bulls related, we're going to see a description of kissing calves. This actually recent archaeological evidence in Ascalon came to show us that there was quite a bit of worship of cows and calves, um, not just a callback to, to Exodus 32 either. This seemed to be a prominent part of Baal worship in the land of, of Israel in these days. But even with just a place name here, that's supposed to evoke one of the better moments in Jacob's life where he finally made some kind of covenant of peace with Laban, where he proved for himself, at least in one respect, that he was kind of trying to be honest. I'd say Galid in Jacob's day was actually a shining example of what honesty and commitment to covenant can bring. That's peace between families. Families that, by the way, were on the verge of like a war of annihilation. And yet now in the days of Hosea, even that, even that could be brought to nothing. The last thing before we go on, maybe even before we end, I've talked just about long enough, if we only do the Sephardi. There's a, a late pun in the Mishnaic period in Hebrew. I was trying to find evidence for it um, any any earlier than that, maybe somewhere in Tanakh, but I couldn't anywhere. But later on in, in the early days of the rabbis and their commentaries on Tanakh, we get this marvelous little pun on the term Aram. Aram, in case anyone hasn't heard yet, is not just like one place. It's not just one kingdom. It's actually a really versatile term for lots of different kingdoms, lots of different city-states, and a culture that spans well over 3,500 years. Um, today, there are even modern Arameans, self-identified Christian Arameans. They're the reason I came to Israel in the first place, to work with them in revitalizing their dialect of Neo-Aramaic. Um, and they're very proud to be Aramean, even though when they read the Bible, they see that in a negative context all the time. Arameans are constantly at war with uh, the kingdom of Israel. Um, there's even different ways to interpret a pretty famous verse in Deuteronomy, whether my father was a wandering Aramean, referring to Abram, or whether it was like a an Aramean killed or tried to kill my father. There people argue quite a bit about how to read that verse. And in the days of the, of the Mishnah, people were also arguing about whether Aram was supposed to be a pun on Ramai, which meant liar or cheat, deceiver. And when they read Lavan Arami, they would at least jokingly, and at most sincerely, repronounce it Lavan Ramai, Laban the cheater, Laban the liar, Laban the, the deceiver. Now, I, I'm not going to project that back onto Hosea's mindset. I don't think it's a fair argument to make that Hosea would would have done the same thing. Until I see evidence of that, I'm not sure we can do that linguistically. But even if it's just a pun, I think it's it's a <laughs> humorous example that brings us to lots of people have read these stories and lots of people have come to the same conclusions that deceit is a central theme of the Jacob story. And it does have massive, sincere, real consequences. So we're going to now just take a few more minutes 
to look at the Ashkenazi um, edition on this. We're going, we just finished the Sephardi Parsha. And now let's go through um, the next part because Hosea has more to say. This is starting in Hosea 12, verse 13. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt. And by a prophet, he was guarded. Ephraim has given bitter provocation. So his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and repay him for his disgraceful deeds. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they send more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. I'd like to think that this is a Judean burn against um, idolaters in the kingdom of Israel, because these are, in one sense, a terrible thing, and in another sense, supposed to be a degrading thing. Gosh, you calf kissers. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor or like smoke from a window. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me, there is no Savior. This is really important because Hosea's name is taken from the same root as Jesus and Joshua's, which is the term for a savior or the concept of God's salvation. This is where he then really gets into it and what God has to say. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. Imagine if Jacob had done that. Remember his vows. If you do all these things to me, give me clothes on my body and food in my stomach and get me home safe, then you'll be my God. Well, other people seem to have had some similar mindset, and yet they didn't then make God their God. They forgot him. So I am to them like a lion. Like a leopard, I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I'll tear open their breast, and there I'll devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are your rulers, those of whom you said, give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my anger. This is David, by the way. And I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son. For at the right time, he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. Can you imagine a baby that just refuses to be born? I mean, there are plenty of scenarios where this verse, the description in this verse might apply, but Hosea is doing a pretty, pretty good job of trying to communicate the senselessness behind Ephraim's conceit behind their complacency, their refusal to turn to God. And yet God does not just give up on them. This is the point he was trying to make with Hosea marrying Gomer. He says, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. 
And this is that verse that Paul loved so much and made us love it too. Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed to pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. We have to keep reading. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we'll say no more our God to the work of our own hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. That's if you like the smell of pine trees, especially around Christmas time, that's what he's talking about. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble on them. Wow. Thank you guys for taking so much of your time to read with me. Um, I've always thought that the the better sermons are 50% scripture at least. And for a Bible study, why not that much more? There is so much to say about so many details, so many metaphors, so many sub points that Hosea is making here. And yet there's just no way we're going to cover that effectively um, in one sitting, especially not just me talking at you. So I hope what I brought to you today was helpful in trying to read through the lens of of crooked merchants, of deceptive people trying to get their way and hiding behind success as some kind of proof of their innocence. And through the life of Jacob, seeing instead it was not because he had a magic touch and just made everything turn to gold. It was God's covenantal faithfulness to Jacob in making that vow that then prospers him even against what he might have deserved for morality's sake. It is God preserving Israel against Assyria at first, and eventually through a remnant preserving them after the fact, even though in Hosea's mind, they have chosen to become inherently deceptive people who trust in their own success as proof, not very good proof, of innocence. And there is coming calamity, but we, we see just with all the prophets, this kind of dual prophecy of the upright are going to walk in the ways of the Lord. The transgressors are going to stumble. So be wise, understand these, discern them, and really come to know what the Lord is telling you here. So I hope that that one lens was helpful for you.
Um, but of course, it's not the only one to read with. So if anything else stuck out to y'all, by all means, please uh, feel free to unmute yourself or raise your hand or put something in the chat and let's talk about it. 